Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Language. Today I'm talking to Robert Barsky about his biography of Zelig Harris. Barsky describes Harris as a major figure in American intellectual life sitting in a corner in the middle of the room. In this interview, we discuss some of the ways in which Zelig Harris influenced a generation of thinkers. We consider his role in bringing a scientific ethos to linguistics. And we look at why his contributions, both in the political and language domains, are so persistently overlooked. Robert, you come to this topic having previously written about Noam Chomsky. This isn't a coincidence, is it? No, not at all. Indeed, when I first approached Noam uh, about doing a, a book about him, he said that, modestly said, that I should, you know, that I should in fact work on Zelig Harris instead. His teacher that uh, this was a much neglected figure of significant importance not only to his own work but to uh, the work of many others. And at the time, my uh, obsession was with Noam Chomsky himself, but I took this to heart and was uh, was anxious to, um, in fact, follow up on on the 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 link. First, in the, I guess in the first instance, the link between Noam Chomsky's work and Zelig Harris's work, so that I would properly inform myself about uh, Chomsky's own biography, um, and then with the eventual intention of pursuing uh, Chomsky's idea. And uh, and going off into the work of of Zelig Harris, I had as a kind of personal rule uh, to pursue the things that Chomsky had suggested, since they had always turned out to be extremely fortuitous and interesting. And the uh, link between them begins right at the uh, right at the beginning of Chomsky's career. But of course, in your biography, you go back further than that into the uh, into the sort of intellectual environment or milieu in which. Selig Harris was working uh, when he first began his career in linguistics and, in, for that matter, in politics. That's absolutely correct. And in fact, it goes back even further. Uh, Chomsky's own description of Selig Harris's influence um, was was one that began at the moment when uh, Chomsky encountered Selig Harris at the University of Pennsylvania, where he was studying. But in, uh, as it turns out, um, uh, Noam Chomsky had been to Selig Harris's uh, house uh, as a child, and uh, I found interesting, uh, relatively close correspondences between some of the interests in Semitics that were manifested by Zelig Harris himself uh, and by uh, Noam Chomsky's father, William. So the intellectual milieu was indeed um, uh, crucial by the time uh, Chomsky goes to college, but the personal relationships goes back uh, much, much further. As you say, um, the intellectual milieu into which uh, Chomsky uh, uh, introduces his work is deeply marked by the work of Zelig Harris. And in fact, Harris is considered to be the vanguard in the field. And therefore, that Chomsky uh, undertakes work in linguistics it is in many ways uh, in response to the kinds of ideas that Zelig Harris was working through um, at that time at the University of Pennsylvania. As you suggest as well, though, there's also the political uh, milieu and the political interests 
and Chomsky says that in the uh, for him, although he had come uh, to Zelik Harris in a sense in an academic setting, it really was the informal political overlap that he found to be most important, most intriguing, most powerful. And he speaks with tremendous um, excitement still about those discussions that he had in informal settings with Selig uh, about the good society and some of the ideas that uh, Harris was working on um, beyond his academics. And the balance in your book is reflected in the subtitle From American Linguistics to Socialist Zionism. Now, of course, uh, it's probably helpful to clarify at this point uh, that though Harris's beliefs are what, what, what we label what we call socialist Zionism, this is a long way away from what passes for Zionism in the political discourse of today. Absolutely. And in fact, uh, that's the, my current interest uh, in many ways, is to follow up not only on uh, Zelik Harris as a person, but upon this idea of socialist Zionism. What's incredibly intriguing as you begin to follow the pathway of Zelik Harris is to discover that he was interested not in what we would now describe Zionism as, which is, for the most part, the support in a sense, the unquestioning support, in many cases, of the actions of the Israeli government. Um, but at that time, what Zelig Harris, I think, most um, interestingly proposes is a socialist Zionism that would be rooted in links and ties between uh, autonomous kibbutzim that would exist in the region that is uh, that was at that time Palestine, uh, that would attract eventually uh oppressed peoples from around the world, and that would eventually spread um, in, a, in a way that does not reflect our understanding of nations, but rather much more a, a, an idea that it would spread and create a socialist region. So the idea is, of course, tied to the uh, uh, a sense of a Jewish homeland. It was, uh, at that time, of unimaginable importance that the Jews find a safe haven. Um, but Far beyond that, his his idea, Zelig Harris's idea, was to turn this into a region to which oppressed people from around the world would go uh, and find solace and presumably ex eventually expand that territory. And the role that the Jews would play, uh, and in particular the Jews that Zelig Harris was at that time in a sense uh, training, if that's the right word, um, would be as a kind of vanguard. Uh, they were trying to work through the particularities of what a region like this might look like, trying to work through the particular forms of governance that would be most appropriate to a multiplicity of, of peoples from uh, with different backgrounds and so forth. So uh, I think the idea of forming a Jewish vanguard that would eventually go to Palestine um, is, is also of, of uh, tremendous import to the eventual ideas that are promoted here. Yes, the, the views that are being exchanged are... Um entirely, uh, as far as one can tell, socially uh, motivated and not, for example, uh, at all millenarian or religious in, or really at all religious in their, um, in their aspect. That's right. Uh, is, it, is it the case that, the, uh, that this, this group of thinkers are brought together in some sense more by their experience of uh, persecution on account of their uh, ethnic identity? By the group, you mean the people who were uh, with Zelig Harris, who were interested. Yes, the people, the members of the um, the movement Avonkar, for example. It's it's a it's a fascinating question. Um, I think in the first instance, the people are uh, who come to be part of Avuka, for which 
because Ellie Harris is a crucial figure, come together in the first instance socially. That is, they're uh, in college necessarily because Avuka is a college organization. They come together because they need a place which is uh, appropriate for young Jews to come together uh, in universities where in many cases uh, somewhat inhospitable. Um, and they came together uh, in, the, in the earliest days of Avuka to simply form friendships and relationships and so forth. I think that as time passes, because the group starts in 1925, as time passes, it becomes clear that the obstacles and forces facing uh, young American Jews are uh, increasingly uh, toxic. Uh, the rise of fascism in Europe, the possible and eventual, in, in many ways, what they consider to be the eventual rise of fascism in the United States, um, made it such that this Avuka group was now going to extend its uh, reach far beyond the social and into the uh, the political. So the organization of VUCA uh, eventually under the guidance of um, people like Rosenberg, and, but but for our for our purposes, most interestingly, under the guidance um, and eventual direction of Selig Harris, um, is trying to face uh, first the election of of Hitler eventually um, the rise of World War II, and eventually after that, the involvement of the Americans in World War II. So Avuka, which starts uh, as this you know, collection of young Zionists who believe in a Jewish homeland, turns into something of profound, and, and I think incredible importance, um, not only for uh, our understanding of American intellectual history uh, and American social history, but in fact, uh, far beyond that. So. Um, and, and as in, in the late 30s, uh, Zelig plays an increasingly important role in that organization, along with his brother Tzvi. The direction that they take is increasingly um, political, increasingly by a Zionist Organization of America standards radical, um, because they advocate, uh, as I said, a kind of socialist region, but they also advocate close ties between Arabs and Jews in Palestine. And this is where I think it becomes incredibly interesting and exciting um, as, as a movement. And perhaps we can better understand Selig Harris and maybe in some ways better understand Noam Chomsky when we consider that the, the, the understanding that is described in, say, the Avuka student news of the region is all tied up with the idea that Arabs and Jews in the Palestine area suffer equally on account of uh, forces in society, and that they therefore are better to band against those forces, notably capitalism, uh, imperialism, uh, exploitation. Uh, they're better to band against them, to fight them, uh, whether it be British petroleum or British imperialism or, or the rise of, of corporate power, than, than they are to uh, wage war against each other. And it's, it's at this point, I think, that the uh, figure of Albert Einstein uh, also looms rather large because Zelig Harris was extremely impassioned um, by Albert Einstein's work. Uh, I, in, in my opinion, saw himself in some ways trying to do for linguistics what Albert Einstein had done for uh, physics and particle physics. Um, but Albert Einstein was himself also a Zionist uh, and himself extremely concerned about questions of Arab-Jewish relations. So 
um, Harris early on, as I indicated in my book, contacts uh, Albert Einstein and uh, invites him into the conversation of Luca. But then very interestingly, and I suppose it's one of the strange coincidences of the world, uh, lands up um, uh, uh, marrying uh, uh, Albert Einstein's personal assistant, uh, Bruria Kaufman. This sounds like um, kind of a, a, a fascinating story of intrigue and, and connections that way. But in fact, uh, Bruria Kaufman had stayed in the Harris household um, when she came to America. Uh, and Harris, therefore, uh, knew her as his first cousin. So when he um, uh, sees her in Princeton when uh, Einstein is there and eventually um, marries her, one could imagine that uh, one of the grand motivations would be to get closer to this figure who we so, who we so admired. We might possibly stretch the point and imagine that uh, Zelig Harris was interested in Bruria Kaufman for reasons that extended into uh, her work with Einstein. Uh, she was a very, very prominent mathematician. In the same way that somebody might suggest that uh, Noam Chomsky uh, was interested in uh, Zelig Harris um, purely for his uh, language work, because he knew that work through his father. But in fact, there had been connections in both instances much earlier on. So it's it's a very interesting and and uh, tightly knit uh, community of of scholars and thinkers and 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 theorists and political uh, 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 dynasts and so forth uh, who are described when when you enter into the world of Avuka and when you enter the into the world of Zelig Harris and his overlaps with Noam Chomsky. Do you feel that the influence of Avuka in the long run is uh, is down to its strength as an organization or to the the confluence of this um, set of remarkable thinkers in the same um, in the same circles in the same environment or are these inseparable to you? Uh, in, there are many ways inseparable. Um, one of the things to look at in uh, trying to understand the history of Avuka is not only the organization as it was between the mid twenties and the early nineteen forties when it ostensibly dissolves, but it's also probably more significant to look at the individuals who were part of Avuka and what they went on to do. Um, and both of these concerns are now central to my work as I look to extend my understanding of Zelig Harris's milieu into an understanding of the Avuka milieu. So you've got a small organization to which uh, young Jews in the Northeast, originally in Harvard, the Northeast of the United States, were attached and affiliated. Um, this, the the uh, organization eventually spreads all the way through the United States, or through many universities in the United States, right up into Canada, at the University of Toronto and University of Manitoba and McGill. Um, so the organization itself, which has this Zionist uh, interest, which has interest in Arab-Jewish relations, which has interest in, uh, in some ways, Jewish cultural affairs, but not religious uh, for the most part, um, has or attracts a series of young and remarkable individuals. And it is now my uh, project to interview the surviving members of that organization to talk about the role that that organization played for them as they uh, formed their ideas and worked through the many professions that they landed up uh, engaged in through their lives. So uh, my work now involves interviewing people who are as different ideologically as 
Bow. Originally, it was Seymour Melman, who's now passed away, uh, and Nathan Glazer, or uh, uh, Robert and Judith Wallerstein, uh, Irene and Zev Schumer, uh, uh, Chava Rapkin, people who uh, have who now come to um, uh, political ideas from quite different standpoints and have pursued very different careers, but who have this amazing common link, this common tie through uh, this uh, Zionist student organization, Avuka. So the so yeah, I think your question um, is uh, very apropos. It is on the one hand an intellectual organization, on another a social organization. These come to be deeply intertwined. And at some level, I guess you could ask the impossible question, which would be how did VUCA shape each of these individuals? What role did, did this organization play for all of them? Um, it's impossible in the sense that it's hard to know 70 years later as I'm asking these questions of people, you know, what they specifically learned from Avuka. But Judith Wallerstein, for example, told me that um, she went to university and she went to Avuka simultaneously. And she learned most of what she knows from Avuka. <laughs> so um, that's, I thought that was a, a beautiful and very telling statement. Indeed. A question related to that that you touch upon in, in your book on Paris is uh, the dissolution of Avuka, which sounds like a, a itself rather a, a curious story with, uh, with rather unexpected um, interpersonal, maybe even power dynamics. Absolutely. And it's a, I think, once again, it's a microcosm, it's a microcosmic story, if I can use that term, that represents a much broader set of phenomena. So the, the, the story is that uh, Avuka uh, becomes increasingly uh, influenced by the New York office, by the work that's done in New York and Philadelphia, inspired in many ways by the work and the ideas, uh, the, in particular the political ideas of Zelig Harris and the people who uh, were uh, closest to him. Um, but with the with the with the World War II and the eventual involvement of Americans in World War II, Zelig Harris becomes extremely concerned about keeping the vanguard of the Avuka group out of the war in order to continue the work towards establishing a socialist utopia in Palestine. So that in itself, I think, is kind of a mind-boggling thing to say. Um, and and of you know tremendous I think importance for understanding that period, and he did so in in part by involving people in his language studies. So he uh, get, gets people to be part of research projects that w that are eventually aimed towards teaching, for example, soldiers. Um, uh, foreign languages quickly and, and effectively and efficiently using techniques that were being developed at that time in linguistics. So this is the plan. You've got a vanguard group, uh, in particular out of the New York office. You've got uh, uh, Zelig Harris, who believes that, in a sense, the war between the Allies and the Axis powers are ult is ultimately a war an imperialist war, a capitalist war, and that the much broader, more significant um, objective should be to advance the cause of uh, socialism, as, as he understood it, 
um, beginning in the Palestine region. Um, and the, the the organization is moving in this direction. However, of course, uh, we're talking here about individuals, probably up to around 2,000 individuals in Avuka. Not everybody shared uh, all of these objectives, and certainly the people outside of the York office, or certainly the people outside of the Northeast, uh, saw the Avuka group quite differently. Even the, uh, the Boston group is described to me as having different objectives and motivations. But the head office being in New York meant that as the, some of the men were recruited and went off to war, and this includes, for example, the very crucial figure of Seymour Melman, there is a growing role that women play uh, in the organization. Um, and, and this is a, 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 another fascinating part of the story that the, the, the Sushana Harris, uh, Ruth eventually Glazer, eventually Gay, um, Irene Schumer play increasingly powerful roles in the New York office. And their, their conception is that the role that Avuka should play is not so much a utopian or utopian oriented role of establishing socialist Zionism in Palestine, but rather rescuing the Jews from the clenches of uh, uh, Nazis by liberating the camps and so forth and so on. The, the, the story of the dissolution of Avuka is wrapped up in the question of how um, strongly the group surrounding Zelig Harris reacted to this idea, and it has been suggested to me um, variously that uh, one of the one of the things that happened to Avuka was that uh, Zelig Harris, who was ultimately behind it all, believed the organization was going to fall into a completely different paradigm of work. That, as uh, in particular, these very powerful, very brilliant women. We're taking the helm of Avuka, that it would change directions. And he um, advocated for its dissolution, which happens in a summer camp. Um, it, it seems to be in 1943. Um, uh, and and the, the, the people behind this dissolution include, um, at this time, uh, Nathan Glazer. And he, he says that he was, at some level, part of a kind of uh, cabal into which he had brought uh, Seymour Martin Lipset. Uh, but behind this idea was ultimately the uh, Zelig Harris uh, and Nathan Glazer. So you've got this this image of uh, a vanguard organization whose direction is, is looking to be changed, the refusal or the rejection of this conception um, by the, you know, the, the vanguards of the organization, the sort of directors of the organization, and its subsequent dissolution. This conception is not agreed to by everybody. Uh, and as I said, I've been interviewing surviving members, and some of them say that with the war, it became obvious that Avuka's um, role was going to shift, that it was going to change and perhaps dissolve, um, or else, or else it, it, it became perhaps more appropriate to meld Avuka into the broader objectives of the Zionist Organization of America, and that uh, it was in fact the Zionist Organization of America, and you know the broader organization, Jewish organizations, who believed that. Avuka was somewhat renegade, uh, smaller renegade organization, uh, somewhat overly radical um, uh, for its own good, and it was this that was behind uh, the, the 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 ultimate dissolution. And that's actually what Seymour Melman told me um, before his death that um, that it really was 
the, the radicalness of the organization rather than than the vanguards uh, d- uh, dissolving it. But as you say, it's it's a fascinating story, um, and and as but but it has I, I think it, it has broader implications than just uh, the dissolution of a small Zionist student organization somewhere in America. It it it, it captures in some ways, or the, the this this dissolution captures. Some of the really important forces that are at work uh, during the war. A point that uh, you also make is that then, as at other times, Zelig Harris was particularly concerned about the possibility of allowing his name to be openly associated with these radical ideas. Yes, which is uh, possibly quite understandable in the light of uh, the the way in which uh, an organization which wasn't wholly in support of Allied objectives in the war would be regarded at that time. Um, yeah, that's absolutely true. Yeah, sorry. No, no. Um, I just wondered why, why, how you, um, uh, how do you feel that that developed throughout his political career? Well, Zelig Harris is a particularly strong example of this. As you know, nothing political, none of his political writings um, emerged during his own lifetime. It's only a group of, of uh, people, Bill Evan and. Uh, um, Marie Eden and Seymour Melman, who helped to bring out the transformation of capitalist society subsequent to his death. So he was perhaps a, a, an extreme example of a very uh, vast feeling Jews, I think in particular uh, left wing Jews, that it was dangerous to promote the kinds of ideas that they had publicly and uh, that there was a real risk involved in having their names associated with political activities of this sort. So, yes, that's of a, a, a gigantic consequence. And in fact, uh, Nathan Glazer told me that this was also true of a number of the Frankfurt School uh, writers, that much of their uh, dialectics, which we in the university always think of as being appropriately complex for the appropriately complicated ideas that they were addressing, he says also that there is some measure of them um, rendering dialectical ideas that were um, likely to get them into trouble. So that the the, the complex language of an or a Horkheimer is not just fascinating in dialectical prose, it's also uh, in some ways uh, uh, hiding your intentions. As I said, in the case of Zelig Harris, it's of gigantic importance because he, you know, he works in the university. He is developing what he believes will be the template for an eventual uh, uh, communications um, um, program or project through his structural linguistics uh, and and his efforts in those directions. That will be of extreme consequence to the emerging telecommunications, communications, and computer industries. So Zalik Harris's work is being uh, funded um, uh, by the military, uh, in addition to being funded by the NSF. His work seems to have gigantic consequences for work like uh, simultaneous uh, translation, content analysis, uh, and the eventual, um, well, what we now know to be the eventual digitization of language and so forth, that he's on the forefront of research that will be of tremendous importance to all aspects of communications, including uh, coding, decoding, and the military. So 
That's one side. The other side is that he has this interest in socialist utopia and and Zionism and and is Jewish and comes from a you know a, a what what would be deemed to be a radical background. For him, as many many others, um, it was therefore necessary to separate the two worlds quite carefully, and he worked on a huge project about which uh, very little is now. Uh, known and uh, part of my the reason from my writing the book uh, was to try to understand this huge project called the the project on the frame of reference. The frame of reference project was specifically aimed towards helping us understand the frame through which people understand their realities, uh, helping us understand the paradigm directs our uh, conception of how the world functions and works and so forth, and. The eventual objective of uh, this transformation, uh, this 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 work on on frame of reference, is to transform, say, workers' relationship to their workplace, to uh, promote ideas of, for example, um, uh, uh, worker involvement and in decision making, uh, and eventually worker takeover of factories, uh, eventually. Um, towards this, once again, this idea of a socialist utopia. So you've got um, a very, very broad and uh, ambitious project under the form of this um, uh, idea of frameworks um, that he works on. But he works on it secretly, and he works on it with uh, a small group of people uh, who work on very particular sections of, of each of these uh, of, of each of the questions that are posed under the auspices of such a huge plan with the eventual objective of producing a kind of das Kapital for the present world. So um, but but it, but he doesn't release any of the findings of this group during his lifetime, none of them, which uh, from my from my interviews and so forth seems to infuriate a number of people who would have liked to have, you know, uh, I guess, participated more directly in, in conversations at the time. But he keeps it quiet, um, I think, for two reasons. One of them, the reason that your question indicates, is extremely dangerous in his conception to uh, actively demonstrate the, these interests. The second is Harris has, I think, an idea that you don't sort of promote a conversation that's not entirely done yet. I have the conception of Harris as working carefully and systematically and so forth on grand questions with the idea of coming up with the answer to that question and then sending it out there. There is a sense that's been conveyed to me that from his perspective, it was irresponsible to say involve yourself in a kind of scientific socialism until you answered the questions that it involves so that you can present a fully baked plan uh, to the world. So. Those are two possible explanations, and maybe it's a little bit of both. It's an interesting consequence, then, that the when the work is published posthumously uh, as the transformation of capitalist society, uh, as you point out, it receives very little attention. Yes. Yeah, it is. Um, it's ironic. It's 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 tragic. I think because it, it's it's a very interesting book, and maybe not in itself. Maybe the book itself is it feels very dated, um, but it's interesting because it does talk about some very interesting and positive 
<clears throat> potential ways of dealing with these questions. For example, he talks at some length about the, the Mondragons in Spain. He talked in, uh, in the Basque region. He, he proposes and talks about a series of alternatives to uh, capitalist society, which are, for I think the current generation, depending upon the region in which you live, uh, relatively unknown. Um, but he does, and, and furthermore, the book is not really that grand pronouncement that you're kind of, that one may have expected would have come out of all this research. Um, at, at the end of the day, it's, it, it, is, it is not a articulation of an alternative to capitalist society. Maybe more interesting, though, and maybe more most interesting in all of what we've been talking about together is the residues of these ideas that were passed on to other people. And here I'm thinking, for example, of Seymour Melman. Uh, Melman, who in many ways became the torchbearer for ideas that were pro- political ideas that were promoted um, by Selig Harris's society, um, and his his work on the transformation of capitalist society, his work. Uh, on War Inc., his work on Pentagon capitalism and so forth, all, I think, bears a very strong trace of things that he learned uh, about workers' councils, about ESOPs and so forth from Zelig Harris. Um, so you're right. The, tra- the, 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 the work of Zelig Harris, the political work, passed with nary a mention. <laughs> um, interestingly, the work, the late, Work of of um, Seymour Mel- Melman also passed with Naria mentioned, but maybe in that case it was because his final book came out just after 9/11. The world's gaze shifted differently, and the things that he was proposing in his final work um, became increasingly untenable for the modern world. Uh, with respect to the, um, the the late Harris work, uh, I get the impression that you were arguing in your in your description of it that in some sense its uh, its day may not have come yet. And as much as this was not necessarily a, a program for a revolutionary radical change, but rather a, a description, among other things, of the ways in which a uh, post-capitalist society might begin to uh, resolve that problem of the distance between the uh, between the workers and the and the production ownership and so on. That's a fantastically interesting um, analysis. Um, and I think it goes to a, a really central issue here. If it is the case that um, Marx's work seems or is uh, incredibly dated uh, and does not seem applicable to the world, if it is the case that those tendencies that are described in Seymour Melman's work or in Zelig Harris's work uh, don't have uh, the currency that one might expect them to have, um, even in the face of you know, the obvious failures of capitalism on a number of fronts, then perhaps it is pointing towards a distant future or a near future uh, when workers will be more, uh, will, will develop a, a firmer understanding of where their interests truly lie and that therefore the book may, uh, we may dust it off at some point the way we might dust off and von Panikuk's work on workers' council someday, and and find in there some some hidden nuggets. The problem is, and this is where I think uh, Noam Chomsky and Zelig Harris um, are, are are looking at or trying to capture the same set of issues or try to understand the same set of issues. The crucial question becomes one of attitudes. 
how do you modify people's attitudes about their workplace? How do you direct people's focus towards their own best interest? How do you convey to people that this system is broken and that there are ways and perhaps even paradigms out there that would allow them to better understand their situation? That's a really interesting question. And it's a really interesting question in the era of the manufacturing consent. So here you can see that I feel that in some ways, some of these questions about attitudes that Harris was very interested in from a psychoanalytic perspective and other perspectives that are named in the work on frame of reference come and hook up with Chomsky's work on propaganda in the current era. The problem is that one of Chomsky's conclusions, which is kind of evident from the current election campaign, say, in the United States, is that people's uh, attitudes can be manufactured, that uh, when Romney pours more money into a state that votes fall, you can uh, engage on in gigantic uh, advertising campaigns and create desires in people that they don't actually say naturally have. That in fact, there's a really pessimistic side to, to all this, which would suggest that our revelation that we might have someday that the current system does not address our interests or needs uh, that might lead us back to, say, Selig Harris's work um, uh, is, is, is destined for failure because the advertising campaigns, the, the media, the, 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 you know, owned by large corporate interests, is capable of shaping public opinion in, in incredible ways. Um, so I, I think that Zelig Harris's work is premised on the idea that we are ultimately rational beings, or, or, and that you know that that yes, we are we're swayed by consumer desires, or yes, we're swayed by power and, and relations in public, but that at some point we can we can be made more clear about where our interests truly lie. There's some hope out there. Well, um, maybe that's not true. Maybe, maybe. Uh, gigantic uh, propaganda campaigns uh, are, are sufficiently uh, powerful and, and manage to tap into um, decision-making in ways that make the eventual objectives that Selig Harris aims unattainable. That's a really important uh, and, and frightening uh, question, I think. It's interesting you bring it up because there were, there were a few times in your book where I, I felt that you were making the point that there was maybe not exactly a deficiency, but a difficulty that, uh, that Zelig Harris sometimes had in understanding people's irrational motivations, if you like. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And that, that sometimes manifested itself at a personal level and, and sometimes maybe was influential in the in the ideology. Um, I'm thinking, for example, of the of the matter of the uh, cooperation between uh, Jewish immigrants and the Arab natives in Palestine. Right. That uh, from a sort of Marxist class-based analysis, there should be cooperation because it would be in everybody's interests and those are the, they have more in common than separates them. Right. But that was not necessarily what people on the ground would actually think. Right. For, if you like, purely irrational reasons. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, he, he does, he is, as you, as you suggest, described by many people who knew him well as cold, as calculating, as rational, uh, maybe overly rational. 
maybe expecting that people should be concerned or would be concerned with the things that concern him because of this idea that um, we are all ultimately not irrational beings, that we all share uh, certain concerns. Um, but but you're right. There, there, he, he perhaps doesn't contend well with irrationality. Um, he doesn't contend well with, um, I would argue that even our artistic sides, even uh, you know some of the, the 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 you know strange ideas that we might come up with are are, are really not part of what we know uh, to have been uh, his interest, and and so too it is the case that he's he's often described as having a lack of personal warmth, <clears throat> that there's not a an entre gens um, between him and others, with a you know a relatively few small exceptions, um, and that this perhaps is an impediment his uh, sharing of these ideas. I, I, I think that this, again, is unbelievably fascinating if you consider it relative to Noam Chomsky, his student. Chomsky, who has, in, in, as a public, in his public persona, a way of drawing crowds together to contemplate complex issues that concern with uh, an, an incredible degree enthusiasm, um, that even though Chomsky's work is so based on rational ideas and notions of, of clearly working through conceptions and so forth, there is also, and nonetheless, uh, a, a, a wittiness in his writing, a, a clarity in his writing. There's a joy in the same way that one might read with joy uh, what Orwell wrote. There's a joy in reading uh, Chomsky's examples. There's a joy in reading his prose. He is from his first collection of essays all the way forward, incredibly witty and charismatic in his writing. Um, this none of this is present uh, in in Harris' writing. Some of the dullest books ever written. So, I mean, in the, the scientific side, and his political book is is not not a heck of a lot more filled with sparkles. So, um, yeah, there's the belief that you can somehow use just pure ideas, ideas in a pure realm. Um, in order to shape the course of history. Perhaps that's not true. Perhaps in an age of the manufacture of consent, perhaps in an age of uh, powerful uh, interests which use um, huge media campaigns and so forth, perhaps perhaps that just doesn't work. So yeah, I think your question is, is, is fascinating. It goes to, to some really uh, crucial questions about the, the distance that one might have to travel even if one had the you know those those answers that that Harris seemed to be searching for, and it brings us back rather neatly to the um, question of the influence of Einstein in particular and theoretical physics in general on Harris's approach to his linguistic work. Yes, uh, I mean you, uh, I get the impression that he had rather mixed feelings about the the success of the enterprise of applying uh, the scientific method in linguistics. He's reported as having little regard for anything that isn't really proper hard sciences, and then right. subsequently, maybe unrelatedly, encouraging people away from linguistics because all the interesting work there is done. Right. Um, do you think, I mean, does that reflect a sort of modesty that is you know, remarked upon by others, dissatisfaction with his own work, or just a very cold, rational assessment of how things are? I think it's a cold, rational assessment of how things are. That's, that's a very good description. Um, but it's also it is also the case, uh, as you mentioned, and I, I love that comment as well. And it's you know I had originally heard that comment from Chomsky, 
Chomsky had originally told me that that uh, when he spoke to Zelig Harris, um, that Harris said that linguistics as a field would not last that much longer, that he was uh, working to solve the problems of linguistics once and for all, and that that would end the field. And he really had the conception that as you know as as you say like his his uh, uh, his mentor or the, the the person he would have liked to have seen as his mentor Albert Einstein that somehow there'd be some set of formulas that would allow us to ultimately create uh, uh, a basis for a solid computational linguistics um, and that you know to quote uh, Chomsky that the field was was eventually essentially over that he has had a few eyes to dot and T's to cross but um, but that was the end of it I heard exactly the same story from Zelig Harris's nephew Ted Liv who wanted to go into linguistics uh, and he went and sought out his uncle and he said well should I go and study linguistics and he said ostensibly the same thing to him so this is this really was something that he uh, seems to have believed but let's take the contrast between uh, him and him and Einstein Einstein is working in a very uh, directed way in, in particle physics and so forth, working, uh, as I said, with Rory Kaufman from a mathematical perspective, trying to solve these incredibly complex and rich problems, um, never you know, ultimately follows and finishes the, 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 the broad uh, set of questions that he had set for himself. Um, I guess you could say the same thing for Zelig Harris. There's a, certainly a line of people now who believe that Harris was Harris's work is still extremely uh, important uh, as pioneering work for increasingly successful computational linguistics, which many people believe to be uh, far more successful in its own terms than than uh, Noam Chomsky describes it as. Um, but l- l- let's take the contrast a little further. Look at the difference between Einstein and Harris uh, in the political realm. Uh, as as you know, uh, Einstein's political aphorisms uh, and his public persona are very well known by the public. He could come down from the mountain of Princeton, utter these uh, statements with great wisdom and insight, and you know people read them and they put them on posters and so forth and so on. In the political realm, <laughs> obviously that's not the case with with Zelig Harris. So I think your question is fascinating, both from the the scientific linguistic side, but also from the scientific social side, the social side of trying to understand uh, social engineering or trying to understand questions of of, of promoting uh, different attitudes amongst workers and so forth towards their workplace. When you talk about the, the idea of, uh, of a, an intellectual coming down from the mountain, so to speak, yes. uh, it reminds me of something um, that Noam Chomsky says in your interview with him for your book. Yes. Uh, where he, he suggests that Zelig Harris had a fear of his own power to influence people. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, and and um, Chomsky uses as an example uh, his meeting of Nathan Glazer with Nathan Glazer, uh, which I actually have as part of this new film that I'm making, this new documentary film. He mentions it that uh, when he first met Nathan Glazer in the 60s, um, he talked to him for just a few minutes, and then he asked him, you know Zelig Harris and and Nathan Glazer said yes, and uh, he said why do you ask? And Chomsky said well you know no no reason but the reason why was because he imitated all of his mannerisms and his, his gestures and gesticulations mm-hmm. and so forth. In other words that that his his personality was extremely powerful um, and that he had and he really did of course have tremendous influence upon upon extremely brilliant people. So uh, yes his power. Uh, to articulate 
ideas, his power to enthrall people in, in uh, with uh, his his somewhat utopian, always scientific uh, ideas and approaches, is clear. And it's it's it, it was a clear influence on Chomsky. It was a clear influence on uh, a, a huge array of others who who came to work with uh, Zelig Harris, either in the linguistic or in the political realms. So yeah, he 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 may have had more power than uh, than than he was even willing to admit. I'd uh, like to ask you about Harris's later linguistic work in, in very broad brush terms. And um, it exhibited, would it be fair to say, a certain indifference to contemporary trends in the field. Yes, it did. Um, and in, in particular, you know, contemporary trends in the field turned into Zel- uh, Noam Chomsky. So Zelig Harris's most renowned student went on to revolutionize the field. And yet um, Chomsky did not say a heck of a lot about Harris's work in his own linguistic writings, um, because he really does go off in different directions. And Harris doesn't say anything about uh, Noam Chomsky's uh, paradigm that he develops uh, in his later work. So there, there is the conception of there being an indifference to uh, Chomsky's work, which, as you know, spread all the way through the world eventually. So that's one side of it. Um, the other side of it is that the the claim, and here I, I, I'd like to draw upon the, the NSF's own assessments of Zelig Harris's later work. In, in the NSF's very complex and um, elaborate analyses of Elie Harris's later project, there is the claim that he is out of touch with, with the field, that he has insulated himself with a small number of people uh, at the University of Pennsylvania, that he works in a very specific and increasingly dated paradigm and so forth. Um, and this becomes a critique of some of his later projects. So Whereas, as I mentioned, in, say in the 40s, 50s, there is the belief that Zelig Harris is maybe not going to solve all the problems of linguistics, but certainly on the forefront of the most important work. By the later assessments, and here I really want to rely on the assessments because it, it was his contemporaries who were saying this. In the later assessments of his projects, they're saying, you know, he's, he's not up on uh, other works in the field. He's increasingly isolated and he's pursuing his own work. Well, if you talk to those people who uh, are interested still in Zelig Harris's paradigm, what they would say is that the paradigm itself posed sufficiently complex questions uh, that Harris doggedly pursued, that it was appropriate for him to continue working in that direction, uh, and that, once again, there's a richness in the uh, substance of what he ultimately produces. Um, so it, it kind of depends on which side of the fence you're on in terms of language theory as to what the lingering importance of uh, Zelig Harris's work is. I, I do have an interesting anecdote, though. I, I w- met with a um, computational linguist who works at the Vanderbilt University Hospital, and he told me that as they're trying to code say, symptoms uh, as described by patients so that they can be compared with similar symptoms in other patients, not only in that hospital but across the world, that many of the methods that they would use would have emerged from a kind of a Zelig-Harris paradigm so that it's not, uh, in, in fact, just moribund as a notion, but uh, it, it does usefully serve a purpose. And, you know, maybe not surprisingly in the medical field, as uh, Harris had taken examples from the medical field 
field because of his brother's own involvement in medicine, uh, his brother Tzvi's own, own involvement in medicine, which provided him with a corpus. Yes, it seems curiously ironic that there's a, um, as Harris's work is being judged comparatively irrelevant, at the same time, through the 80s, there's an upsurge in work which is derived indirectly from his own initial researches. Yes. But in yeah. which he's not, he doesn't, he doesn't care to engage in that, doesn't care to be sort of actively a patriarch to this, um, these fields. Yeah, well, I, I think that, you know, he didn't live to see, uh, you know, the, the, say the current resurgence in, in, or, and the, and the incredible growth of, say, computational linguistics. Um, and maybe the challenges uh, that are being posed to uh, the Chomskyan paradigm uh, now, uh, valid or not. Um, so, so no, he did not. He, he did not live. And it's, it's. I think it's still the, the verdict is still out. Um, there is a uh, at the MIT anniversary uh, celebration. There was this question of what what direction science is taking, and Chomsky very adamantly said that the, the this the, I say a, a broadly described as a computational approach is deeply limited in terms of actual knowledge, that it may work uh, as an engineering uh, project might work to solve certain, uh, not solve certain types of problems, but address certain types of needs that we have, but that it doesn't get at the, the, the deeper questions that are being posed. Uh, Chomsky would still, of course, say, say that about uh, Harris's work, that it, it and, and in fact, Chomsky never really displays an interest uh, lingering interest in in Harris's paradigm at all that uh, you know he as as he describes it he goes off in a different direction from his student days forward uh, and you know really does not ascertain there to be a serious um, lingering importance uh, even though others uh, may suggest that there is. Well, it's been fascinating talking to you about these subjects. Our time is quite nearly up, but I must ask you about your uh, your current project. Oh, thank you. Yes. I, I couldn't be more excited uh, about this. Um, uh, the, the way that it started was that, and, and, and it's, it's unbelievably sad to say this, but the way that it started was that as I tried to better understand Zelig Harris, I would go to speak with and interview his, uh, his students, um, beginning in the early, in the early days uh, with uh, Seymour Melman, but ex- extending uh, out to um, uh, Murray Eden and Meyer Raban. Uh, for example, in fact, I had the meeting with the three in New York City in the in the nineties. Um, the two, two of those uh, three people are, are have now passed away, and I t- took notes during that meeting, and then deeply regretted that I hadn't recorded it. So in later interviews, I began to start recording uh, people, um, even though I I have this I had this resistance towards being this intrusive, and then eventually I I. I, I particularly recall a meeting that I had with um, uh, Seymour Melman in New York City in which he, he was losing his office at Columbia and he was em- being emptied out of his office. And he, he was describing that the, the period that I was interested in. And, and he actually he was in his 80s, uh, I guess late 80s by then. He stood up on his steel desk in front of me in this empty office on a hot day New York City at Columbia University in a basement of the Industrial Engineering Building. He stood up on his desk and waved his arms around, told me uh, incredibly sad stories about what had happened uh, in, in the periods that he was recalling. And I thought, you know, 
only I will witness this. Um, so I started thinking that I should begin to film. And just for purely documentary reasons, really just to document what I was doing, I began to carry uh, in a very amateurish way, uh, borrowed equipment around and just stick it on a tripod and interview people. And I've now become, uh, it, it, the term is wrong, but uh, addicted to watching the these these figures describe their lives, describe the It's unbelievably fascinating. And I realized that I had something here that was that was so incredibly inspiring, interesting that I went for grant and asked for uh, monies to return to interview uh, former members of Avuka for them to reminisce not just about Zelig Harris but about Avuka and in many ways their own lives, which I'm now filming and creating uh, a documentary film about this mid-year. My original thought was that it would be the story of Avuka. But it has turned out to be, in a sense, more interesting to describe the story of young people who get together with ideals and dreams and hopes and utopian uh, worlds in their minds and who, against the dominant paradigm of their parents, uh, create new avenues for exploration. And in a sense, that's that's a story that's being told uh, in in the interviews that I've been doing. This it, it's it's not just about the you know I said, homeland for Jews in Palestine. It's not just about socialist utopia. It's not just about the kibbutzim and the possible uh, you know spread of the kibbutzim as a concept of, of social organization. It's about young people who get together and because and who love each other and who care about each other and who respect one another's opinions and who try to articulate a vision that makes sense for the future. And and so my interviews, which now I guess I have about uh, almost two dozen, um, are, are just resonate with these incredible themes. Um, and fascinatingly enough, a number of the people I interviewed are, are, are married to people they met out of meetings, you know, in the 1930s and 40s. We're talking about people here who are, know in their 90s uh in fact i even met Delic harris's brother who's over 100 so uh, the you know dealing here with people whose reminiscences go right back to the to, to their the time when they met their their still current spouses uh, at avuka meetings in the 1930s and early 1940s it's incredibly powerful stuff well it sounds like an absolutely fascinating project and i uh, look forward to hearing about it it's brought to fruition thank you so much and thank you again for your time here in the interview. It's been my pleasure. I've been talking to Robert Parsky about his book, Zelig Harris, From American Linguistics to Socialist Zionism. This is Chris Cummins from New Books and Language saying thanks for listening.